take your Bible and open up with me to the book of Esther. The book of Esther this morning will be in Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5, as we continue to walk through this book, looking at this series that I've titled, Jesus is Better, and how that in the book of Esther, you do not see the name of God listed, but you certainly see the desire for God emphasized. You may not see God's visible hand at work in the book, but you certainly see his invisible hand as he works all things according to the plan that he has provided for his people. And as we work through this book, we are really seeing how Jesus does everything better. That if there was something good that came out of uh, Esther's life, Jesus did that better. If it's something that came out of Mordecai's life, Jesus did it better. And today, we're going to look at the idea about how Jesus gives us a better identity. I want you to think about a question for just a moment. How do you most often introduce yourself? If, if someone were to come up to you and they were to say and ask the question, who are you? What would your response be to them? Now that response may be varied among us here in this room this morning, but your response, whatever it might be, your response revealed your identity. Your identity is how you perceive yourself or how you present yourself to be perceived by others. Your identity is very important because your identity determines your activity. Listening? Identity determines activity. Who you think you are determines how you live your life. Who you think you are has an impact on the decisions that you make. Our identity is a huge issue. In fact, it's something that all of us in this room are struggling with right now, and we have been since the day we were born, and we will struggle with it until the day we die. It started when you were a baby. You were known as the chubby kid or the skinny baby. I was known as a cute baby gift from God. Uh, you, you, you might be known as the, 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 the baby that's maybe kind of smart or the, the, the pastor's kind of funny. Uh, you, you, that, that starts when you're a baby and you get a little bit older and your identity begins to get established. You, you might be known as the athletic a student in, in kindergarten or grade school or elementary school, or, or maybe you were the kid who was more smart than others, or maybe you preferred the artistic side more than the athletic. You, you enter junior high, and everyone there is confused about their identity. No one knows who they are. And then you get to adolescence, and your identity is largely formed by your GPA, your hobbies, how you dress and you may even change how you dress to fit in with someone else whose identity you'd rather be. You're identified by who you hang out with and what you do during that time. You enter college and you kind of get a chance to reinvent yourself or reestablish and reset your identity. And you begin to, if you choose to do so, do things differently. And your identity becomes what fraternity or 
sorority you join, your major, how involved you get in student life, uh, if you play athletics at the next level, those kinds of things. And as you graduate college, your identity then largely hinges on what kind of job that you take, on what kind of relationship you have if you decide to have one, whether you pay a mortgage or whether you pay rent, what kind of car you drive, etc. And then if you get married, you become parents, your identity then is in relation to other people. Can we have kids? Can we not have kids? Do we want kids? Do we want these kids that we have? (laughs) What do we do with these kids that we have? Identity begins to really take on different shades of meaning, and that identity train continues, and and my wife and I are about to walk through this one when all the kids leave, and and the nest is now empty, and and then you have other decisions later about when do you retire, what do you do when you retire, do you have membership in the the garden club, the golf club, or the bingo club, Uh, even down to your last one, what's your identity? You want to a metal casket or a wood casket from Mike Lewis. It all, I mean, from start to finish, we are consumed with our identity. Suffice it to say that since we have so many choices we make throughout our life about our identity, we never really get a clear picture of who we are. And for that reason, I'm thankful for Esther chapter 5. Because Esther chapter 5 records for us some great insight about identity. We're going to see two people in Esther chapter 5. Esther and a man by the name of Haman. Two very different people, two very different settings, two very different outcomes. And a set of circumstances arises in Esther chapter 5, and Esther is able to arrive at an identity. The same thing happened to Haman. He just responded differently. And so the way we're going to break down our concept of trying to understand how Jesus gives us a better identity is to look at it from a couple of different perspectives. We're going to look at the identity of Esther, and then later we're going to look at the idolatry of Haman, and then lastly we'll look at the influence of Jesus in all of this. But first let's pay attention to the identity of Esther. We find this in Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Let me quickly remind you of what's taking place. Xerxes, the king, and Esther, the queen, they had been married for a few years, but they're not very close. In fact, chapter 4 tells us they have not seen each other for 30 days. 
days. Now, for some spouses, that might be ideal in the dream, but uh, not certainly not ideal in this context. But they've not seen each other for 30 days. And during that, uh, this time, Xerxes has empowered a man named Haman to be his right-hand man, his vice president of sort. And Xerxes makes a decree that everyone must bow down to Haman when he comes into your presence. And if you don't bow down to Haman, you're going to be in trouble. Well, there is one man whose name is Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, who refuses to bow down to this man, Haman. And Haman is infuriated by this, and he decides not only will he destroy Mordecai, he's going to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, which would include Esther, and historians tell us would include upwards of 15 million people. Esther hears about the plot. She has a three-day fast, which is why the chapter opens by telling us on the third day. And she begins to devise a plan to save her people. You see, Esther is Persian royalty, but she's also of Jewish ancestry. Esther has an opportunity to be a mediator of sorts, between the people and the king, and we looked at that last week. But the problem is that the Persian law states that you can only enter the king's presence if you are invited. If you came before the king unannounced, you got his attention, he had a scepter. If he tipped that scepter towards you, that was his indication that you may enter his presence and listen and have an audience with the king. If he did not tip the scepter towards you, that meant that you lost your head. So you've got to be pretty sure that the king's going to grant you a request before you enter into his presence. But as we saw last week, Esther said, if I perish, I perish. So she gets on her royal robes, she puts on an outfit that the queen would wear, and she goes into the presence of Xerxes. Xerxes extends his scepter to her, the door is open for a conversation, and here's what takes place. Verse 3, the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you into the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Esther is a Baptist, we know by this verse. She's fixing food. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that he may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So 
the king says, what you want? She says, let's uh, come to dinner. They get to dinner. Esther, what do you want? Esther says, let me cook dinner again tomorrow night at this feast, and then I'll tell you what is going to happen. Something is happening in Esther's life. Esther is being much more active than she has been before. Esther is coming into her own faith. She is maturing in her relationship with God. She is standing on her own faith, and she's starting to own her faith. You can see that she's making progress. She's taking a risk by going into his presence. We call that faith. She's not cowering down in fear. What's happened? Esther has received a new identity. This is very important. Really tune in. Esther is a Persian princess. That explains her, but it does not define her. Very important for us to grasp this. Her parents died and she was an orphan. Her status as an orphan might explain her, but it does not define her. Mordecai hasn't been the greatest father figure in her life, And that may explain her, but it does not define her. She was the queen of Persia. That explains her, but it does not define her. Esther knows that she belongs to God, which is evidenced by the fact that in chapter 4, she asked people to fast for her so that in three days she could go before the king to try to save her people. I want you to to hear me this morning when I, I talk about this source of identity. It's such a big deal. Your identity is in one of two places. Your identity is either I'm one of God's people or your identity is I'm not one of God's people. And if you're not one of God's people, then your identity is something that you must achieve. So you have to be more handsome than everyone else. You have to be more beautiful than everyone else. You look at your success. You look at your income. You look at your marital status. You you look at what clothes you wear, what kind of car you drive. Those things are what you look at to give you an identity if you're not one of God's people. But if you are one of God's people, your identity is not achieved. It is received. Can I repeat that? If you are a follower of Jesus, a child of God, your identity is not achieved. It is simply received. Because as a child of God in my identity, that means I am loved, I am forgiven. It means I'm blessed, I found favor in the sight of God. I don't have to impress anyone because I'm loved perfectly by God. When you become a child of God, you receive a new identity. We do not work for our identity. We work from our identity. Did you hear that? We do not work for it to achieve it. We work as people of God from our identity, knowing that we are loved by God. The world lives for their identity. 
Only a follower of Jesus can live from their identity. So let me ask you this morning, what is your identity? Esther comes to a firm foundation of a new identity as someone who belongs to God, is loved by God, has found favor in the sight of God, is forgiven by God, is helped by God, is loved by God. Her identity changes how she perceives herself, and that changes how she views her life. When we receive a new identity in Christ, we experience a similar change. Have you experienced that? Don't you want to experience such a change that you don't have to live for your identity? You live from what God has given to you. Okay, that's the identity of Esther. But now let's look at the idolatry of Haman. And if you've ever wanted to, to you know how if you want to feel good about yourself, you go and you find somebody that's not doing quite uh, as well in the sphere of life as far as they're just a little bit meaner than you so you can feel better about your lack of kindness. You know what I'm talking about? Well, you're about to feel a whole lot better after reading about Haman, okay? The idolatry of Haman. Haman loves glory. He loves power. He loves recognition. He loves control. His identity is in his success. His identity is in public recognition. His identity is in public honor. Verse 9 tells us that Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Why is he joyful? Why is he glad? Because Esther, the queen, has invited him to dinner with the king. This is the best day ever for Haman. I'm sure he had someone print that shirt best day ever and he was wearing it i'm sure he tweeted it, hashtag best day ever this is the best day for haman he could not be happier he could not be more proud the best day of his life he was chosen by king Xerxes to be his right hand man and now he's going to dinner with Xerxes and the king and esther the queen and if you go to dinner with the king you in a lot better shape than if you go to dinner with the pastor okay because the king can afford a little bit better and he's about to have a great day. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Haman's leaving the party. He sees Mordecai, the guy who would not bow down to him, the guy who's wearing sackcloth and ashes, who's doing a public protest. Can you imagine how red Haman's face gets about this moment? Nevertheless, verse 10, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sat and brought his friends and his wife, Jairus. He gets a crowd together. Guys, you'll never believe what happened to me today. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Brag, 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 brag. I am so important. I am so rich. I'm so close to the king and the queen. You are so lucky just to know me. Anybody have a Haman in their life? Yep, it just got real, didn't it? Haman's idolatry is himself, he says in verse 12. 
Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast he prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her to go to the king. Guys, the guest list is just one person. And I'll give you one guess as to who it is. It rhymes with Jamin and it's me. He is so excited about the spot he's getting. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Do you comprehend that? He just said everything about his best day ever, but then he says all of it's worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai sitting not bowing. He's just sitting at that king's gate. Listen to me. When you practice like Haman, when you practice idolatry, everything else gets out of perspective. He cannot see what's happening in front of him. And so in verse 14, he says, Let gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. And then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. The, the gallows would have been a high, high pole. It, it literally means to, to be hung upon a tree. But notice what he said. He wanted these gallows to be built seven, or a certain number of cubits high. He said specifically 50 cubits high. That's about 75 feet. To give you some perspective of that, Solomon's palace, the great King Solomon, his palace was only about 30 feet high. So Haman is one of these gallows, just this execution machine to be uh, hung 75 feet in the air. Why does he want this so high? He wants to crucify Mordecai on it. So he wants it as high as possible so everybody sees. He wants to make a public spectacle of of Mordecai. Haman doesn't just want Mordecai to suffer. He wants him to suffer in front of an audience. Bitter people like Haman, bitter people do horrible things. And you know who else is prone to bitterness? I give you a hint. Starts with I, ends with you, starts with Y, ends with you, has O in the middle of it. I'll get spelling later. You and me. Bitterness makes us do horrible things. Your identity and I, my identity, you and I will form an identity. And if our identity is in our idolatry, it will lead to misery. See, idolatry is the problem of man in Scripture. Underlying every sin is idolatry. Idolatry happens when we take the good things and we make them God things, and then those things become bad and sinful things. Haman's idolatry is power, control, recognition, respect. He wants people to obey him. A good thing. It's not bad to want to be respected. In fact, it's uh, that the Scripture calls us to honor honor one another. To be honored is not a bad thing, but it became to him a God thing, and that became a bad thing. Whereas Esther has wisdom and patience 
and prudence and self-control and a wise plan for the good of others because her identity is wrapped up in her relationship with God. Haman's identity is in his performance and how others perceive them. Haman's identity is his idolatry and people like me and people like you and people like Haman, we will violently defend our idols. We've just seen the emotional spectrum in Haman. When his idol is fed, he's so happy. But when his idol was threatened, he's so violent. I asked you earlier, what is your identity? I also want to ask you this, what is your idolatry? Say, Pastor, I don't have a problem with idolatry. You lie through your teeth. Let me tell you, real quick quiz. And look, we're serving you lunch, so we're fine on time, okay? Everybody else is out of town, so you can get to where you need to go, no problem. How you determine what your idol is, very simple. What can you not live without? What must you have in order to have the perfect life? What must you have, and if you don't have it, you will not be satisfied until you get it. That's your idol. That's your idol. And the heart is nothing but an idol factory. Even when our identity is Christ, we have to be on guard for our idols. That's why Jesus enters the scene and we see not just the idolatry of Haman and the identity of Esther, but thirdly, we see the influence of Jesus. See, Jesus changes everything. In fact, there was a follower of Jesus who, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this verse in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21. Little children, followers of Jesus, keep yourselves from idols. This is the invitation of God to you that's possible because of the influence of Jesus. To keep yourselves from idols so that your identity remains bound up in Christ. For you see, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have God as your Father. And this is an invitation from a loving God who wants the very best for his children. It's not God's desire for us to use him to feed our idolatry. It is God's desire for us to turn to him so he can free us from our idolatry. And for us, listen, for us to be satisfied with our identity as children of God. I've got some good news for you this morning. You do not have to live with your identity in your idolatry. Haman never changes. He never repents. His life, we'll see next week, in the weeks following, his life ends miserably and tragically. Esther, in comparison, has a change of her identity, and her life does not end in some brutal, shameful tragedy and misery. It's not a perfect life, but she lives a noble life, and in a weird twist of, of irony from heaven, Haman wants to take everyone else's life, but he ends up losing his own, whereas Esther is willing to lose her life, but God allowed her to be spared and save thousands of lives. 
But you see, Jesus does give us a better identity. Haman lived for his own glory. Jesus lived for the glory of God. Haman made God's people his enemy. Jesus made the enemies of God, you and me, his friends. <clears throat> Haman demanded that death come to those who did not bow down to him. Jesus did not declare war on us when we failed to bow down to him. Haman would not forgive one man for one thing. Jesus will forgive anyone for anything. Haman made a cross for a man to hang upon. Jesus became a man to hang upon a cross for all men. Haman force people to bow down to him in fear. Jesus invites people to bow down before him in love. Haman sought to achieve his identity through his own works. In Jesus, we receive a new identity through the works of Jesus himself. Esther waited those three days to, to leave her chambers and save her people, and Jesus waited three days to leave his tomb and to save his people. Esther was clothed in her royal robes, but praise be to God today that in Christ Jesus we are clothed with the splendor of righteousness from God himself, our perfect king. Esther was preparing a lavish banquet for King Xerxes and Haman. King Jesus is preparing an even more lavish banquet for us. Jesus gives a better identity. My question to you is very simple this morning. Will you forsake your own self-seeking identity and embrace a new identity that's in Christ Jesus today? For Jesus has done everything that's required for you to have this new identity. You cannot achieve it. You cannot work hard enough to gain it. Identity in Christ is never achieved. It must be received. Scripture tells us, the book of Acts, that to all who received him, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. I'm a child of God today, not because I've gone to church my whole life. That doesn't have a thing to do with it. I am not a child of God today because I do good things. I promise you, end of the day, my bad always outweighs the good. Every day, so does yours. I'm a child of God today. Because a long time ago, I just said, Jesus, you've got to save me. Will you be my Savior? I want to follow you. And I put my belief and I put my trust in Jesus. And he placed me on that day many years ago in Christ. Now, have I perfectly lived in Christ all those years since? Not even close. My heart is a constant idol factory. But I don't have to worry at the end of the day if Jesus loves me. 
I don't have to worry at the end of the day about whose family I belong. Jesus gives me a new identity. The world may call me a sinner without hope. Jesus calls me a saint full of hope, all because of Jesus. And he did that for me. He can do that for you. So in just a second, we're going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. This altar is going to be open for you if you need to come and, and pray. It's, that's, that's why we offer this time. If, if there's a commitment you need to make, it's, it's why we offer this time. If there's a question you have about what it means to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, we're available to help try to answer those questions and, and show you from Scripture what Jesus says about this new identity. Maybe you already have this new identity and, and you need to make that public and take that step like Oakley did this morning and, and be baptized to, to tell other people that you are in Christ and that act of obedience living from your identity. I don't know what God's placed upon your heart today, but I do know that living in Christ is far better than living in Jonathan Russell. And I hope today that you'll choose to live in Christ. Father God, I thank you for what Jesus has done for me. I thank you that he saved me I thank you that he's made a way possible to be in Christ in a relationship with him. I pray that you would help me and others who've made that decision to constantly make the choice to continually practice who we are in our relationship with you. I pray for those here today, anyone in this room or listening to us online who has not made that decision to be in Christ. May today be the day they forsake their sin and find you faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.